Hey folks, Andy Patton here wishing you all a happy new year and of course a happy mailbag Monday. No Zags games last week, but still plenty of questions to get to today. All right here, Locked on Zags. Don't go away. You are Locked on Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is the official sponsor of ESPN College Football. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. I also want to thank all of you who have carried over your New Year's tradition into 2022 of making this podcast your first listen of the day, or your first watch of the day. For those of you who check the show out on YouTube, if you do not, make it a resolution to hit that subscribe button. As soon as you can, you can check that one off right away. Hit subscribe, search, go to YouTube, search Locked on Zags, hit that button. Sincerely appreciate it. Trying to get up over 250 subscribers, eventually getting close to that 500 mark. Uh, Really appreciate all of you who have done that. And those of you who have not, just go ahead and hit that button. It's super easy, super helpful for me as well. So I appreciate it. All right, so this is a reminder for most of you, but for any new listeners, uh, really easy to get involved in Mailbag Monday if you'd like to. You can tweet at me at ScoreZagScore or at LockedOnZags whenever you're thinking of a question. It helps if you tag it Mailbag Monday, but either way, I'll take the question, I'll pop it into my note sheet, and I will answer it on Sunday afternoon when I record these Mailbag episodes. You can DM me on Twitter. That's how I get a handful of questions as well. And of course, you can email me at AndyPatton013 at gmail.com. A lot of people use that to send multiple questions or to send questions as well as Andy Locks for the Thursday Andy Locks episodes. Whatever way you use, I promise you I'll get your question into the show this week because, of course, there was no Gonzaga games last week. Still got a lot of questions. Uh, Of course, quite a few questions about COVID, which is here in segment one. So we're going to start that out with this question from Christian via Gmail. He says, Draymond Green, who is not shy in his speaking his mind, that is very true, was very critical of the way the NBA is handling their COVID protocols and procedures. I know this is very different in the NBA, but will the NCAA come out with some revised procedures for college basketball or for college sports in general? One of the examples that seems to to glaringly demonstrate the problem was the Holiday Bowl, UCLA versus NC State. I guess what I'm asking can't truly be answered, but Draymond's friend's frustration is legitimate. Yeah, rarely are we all siding with Draymond Green, right? <laughs> it seems like something that hasn't always happened. He's certainly been a very vo- vocal player throughout his career, but Gonzaga fans probably remember him not so fondly for those who were around for that Michigan State game about a decade ago. Regardless, the NCAA seems to handle decision-making Similarly to our government, which I'm not going to get too far down the rabbit hole politically in that sense, but the the government leaves a lot of decisions to the states, whereas the NCAA has seemed to rely heavily on their conference leadership to make those decisions, as opposed to putting together uniform policies and procedures. They've kind of said, well, we'll let the ACC decide what they want to do in the Big Ten, the Big 12, Pac-12, SEC you know, and then going down and, of course, into the mid-major conferences, WCC, WAC, uh, AAC, all of that. And so I think that that stylistically, now that we're in conference play, does work a little bit 
better because the conferences can decide how they want to. Because basically every game from here on out, with a few exceptions, uh, are conference games. So from here on out, every game that has to be determined can be determined by the conference leadership. That wasn't the case earlier in the year when, of course, non-conference games were being canceled. And, you know, the Pac-12 had a certain policy and that it was different than the WCC's policy, which was different than the SEC's policy. So they probably needed to do some kind of more uniform policy and procedures from the top at the beginning of the college basketball season. They did not. <laughs> they, just, they just didn't do it. Uh, Mark Emmert and the NCAA have been pretty unwilling to move on a lot of things and making quick decisions uh, to benefit the health and safety of the league in potentially making quick decisions that would potentially inhibit people's ability to pay money for college sports was almost certainly not something that the NCAA was going to do, as we have seen with these bowl games getting canceled at the last minute, which is extraordinarily frustrating for the fans, for the players, for the coaches. Uh, Obviously, basketball games, we've seen high-level basketball games get canceled at the last minute. We've seen tons of college basketball games get canceled. The WCC did not play last week. They did not play a single game of college basketball on Thursday or Saturday. Many, many of the women's games, including both of Gonzaga's games, were canceled as well. This is obviously a huge problem. There is there is not any other way to talk about this. The WCC went over on games last week. That is appalling and upsetting. And I'm not blaming the WCC leadership for these games getting canceled. That would be a bit ridiculous. It's not their fault that the players tested positive for COVID. But we need to figure out a way to solve this. And we can't, I mean, this can't happen another week. This can't happen throughout the season. There's some belief that perhaps these teams, and, and we don't have this data in front of us. The teams know this individual data, but we do not know, you know, was it two players on Gonzaga's roster who were sick and they just put everybody else in precautions? Did eight players test positive for COVID? I don't know how many of them were symptomatic. Ace, I, I don't know any of that. And there's a pretty good chance, unless Mark Few suddenly becomes a lot more forthright with the media, which seems unlikely, there's a good chance we're not going to get a ton of answers to this with regards to Gonzaga. And for many of the other schools that are having positive tests, there's a good chance we're not going to get a ton of information on that as well. There is a belief that if these teams are having these significant outbreaks where eight or more of their players are testing positive, that the, the belief or hope, I suppose, is that if that happens for every team in the WCC or a majority of teams, you kind of get this pseudo herd immunity going into March where the teams are much less likely to test positive because they have already had the virus. There, the, the science, the data on that is not conclusive. There's, We do not know definitively that because you have tested positive for COVID-19, even if they know, hey, this is the Omicron variant, they don't know that that means that you will not test positive for the Omicron variant again or Delta or you know, COVID, the, the initial one, like we, we don't know, as far as I know, somebody can point a link to me if I'm incorrect, but as, as far as I understand it, we don't know that that's what it means. But it is likely, or at least possible, that a lot of these teams will not have future breakouts because of this, which would be great. It would be great if we could feel more comfortable that this is not going to impact the NCAA in March. Which leads to my next question from John via Gmail, who says, With so many teams on a COVID pause, what do you think this is going to mean for the NCAA tournament? Will there be another bubble with one location? Would they cancel it again? What does it mean for fans in the arenas? So a couple different questions here. Uh, Number one, they are not going to cancel the NCAA tournament. I would be stunned. Things would have to change significantly between now and March in terms of 
the, the number of deaths or serious hospitalizations, basically another variant that is really, really deadly. <laughs> like, frankly, that is probably what need, would need to happen for the NCAA to cancel the tournament. Right now, the Omicron variant is very spreadable. It is it spreads from person to person faster than either of the previous COVID variants have, but it is doing far less damage in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of deaths. Part of that, a significant part of that is the vaccines. People who are vaccinated and and boosted or people who are even just vaccinated are far less likely to get sick and die from COVID. Hopefully that is something that is widely well known and accepted by people listening to this show. That is a definitive fact that that is the case. So. Fans who are going to the games, yes, if they're not wearing masks, which you should wear masks, masks work as well. But fans who are going to the games are, there is a a decent chance, unfortunately, that they will get COVID. Being in an arena with 8, 10, 12, 15,000 people, even if you're wearing a mask, is difficult. Especially if you're not wearing a mask, it's quite likely that you're going to get sick. But less people are getting seriously sick. And I think as long as the NCAA is still, as long as that fact is still true, the NCAA is not going to cancel March Madness. There's a chance that they limit fans. There's a chance, a small chance, that they completely cut fans out. I would be very surprised if that happened as well. I think there's a chance they limit fans. There's a chance that they're checking vaccination records and uh, being pretty stringent about mask policies. We'll see how, you know, it's it's difficult to enforce that in, in arenas as big as the arenas that many of these NCAA tournament games are going to take place at. But I do think that it's unlikely that the games get canceled. It's unlikely they move to a bubble, although I do see why that would be helpful, <laughs> certainly. Uh, it would make it much easier to quarantine the teams. It would make it much easier to uh, replace teams if you needed to do that. It would just it would just make things a lot easier. But I'd be surprised if they did that. It takes away a lot of business, a lot of industry from the cities that are hosting these games, I think, trying to pull fans away. You know, people who already bought tickets to see these games in Portland or Denver or Seattle or wherever the games are taking place would be very frustrated if they weren't able to go. So I'd be surprised if we saw that. I think the NCAA tournament is more or less going to happen as planned. Again, I think the NCAA is hoping that a lot of these teams are kind of, for lack of a better term, getting COVID out of the way early. (laughs) They're getting it done now. Most of the players on the team test positive. Therefore, it won't be a situation in March. I think that's a gamble. I don't know that that's necessarily super accurate as to how it's going to go. I think for Gonzaga fans, if we do find out that 8, 9, 10 players on this team tested positive and that's why they went on a pause, I would feel a little bit more confident that, hey, it's pretty unlikely that they're all going to test positive again in March, but it's there's no guarantee. And so it'll be interesting to see if the NCAA does try to do anything to mitigate that. But this is a huge, huge cash grab for the NCAA, and, and canceling it twice in three years would be devastating. I mean, a huge loss for the NCAA. So I'd be surprised if they do that. I think it'll go on. I think it'll look mostly normal. That's kind of the expectation that I have is that fan butts will be in seats. Fans will be there. The, the energy will be there. The games will all go on. There'll be masks and there'll be maybe a few less people in, in certain stadiums. But for the most part, I think it's going to kind of just happen as normal. And then the third question for this segment, another one from Christian via Gmail. He says, one of the big concerns many Zag fans have going into the NCAA tournament is the gap between the WCC tournament and the big dance. Are these pauses any kind of odd preparation for that? Is the break between Merrimack and the Texas Tech game indicative of what this team is capable of dealing with in regards to pauses? So this is a really interesting question, and I think an excellent point that I personally had not thought of. But yes, 
Gonzaga is frequently, it is frequently brought up every year that Gonzaga has one of the earliest conference tournaments in all of college basketball and then has come out flat in the NCAA tournament. Now they have gone to the Sweet 16 in, you know, most of the last decade consecutively. So clearly it's not impacting them significantly, but we have seen them look flat in their first game. And there has been speculation in the past that it is because of the long break between the WCC tournament and the big dance. To use the Merrimack-Texas Tech gap as an example is a little bit flawed for the primary reason that Gonzaga had that entire gap with the complete intention knowing that on Saturday, December 19th, they were playing Texas Tech. They knew who was on the team. They knew the style that they played. They knew the coach. They knew what time the game was going to be. They knew where the game was going to be. They knew every single piece of information necessary to game plan for that game, and they did. They were ready for what Texas Tech was going to do. They were ready for them on offense. They were ready for them defensively, and they went out and blew the doors off of them and beat them pretty handily. Uh, credit to the players, credit to the coaching staff. It's still not easy to beat a good team like that, and Texas Tech was was ready for Gonzaga too. Like They had been scouting them, and they had been preparing for them as well, and Gonzaga still won out and won. But the NCAA tournament, you have this long gap where you don't know who you're going to play. You have no idea. You do not know where you're going to play. Obviously, Gonzaga in recent years has had a pretty good guess. <laughs> you know, they knew that they were going to be the one seed in the West. They knew where that game was going to be played. They knew that their opponent was going to be an opponent that was beatable, I guess is the best polite way to put that. But they didn't know who they were going to play in the second round. And the 8-9 games are, you know, Gonzaga hasn't lost many of those, but they're not easy. Like, that that's a pretty decent team that you're playing. So they haven't had a lot of time to prep for those games. So I think that comparing this situation, that is the big flaw in trying to make this comparison because it is different. And it's hard to, to sit on your hands for a week plus, you know, close to two weeks, where the majority of that time you do not know who or where or when you are going to play your next game. That's really hard. And this is not just an advantage, or excuse me, a disadvantage that Gonzaga faces. Other teams face this as well. There are other teams that get their, their tournament done early. There are other teams that have long gaps before they play. So it's not exclusive to Gonzaga. But I do think that that specific challenge that they face isn't necessary. I don't think that these breaks are necessarily helping because Gonzaga doesn't get the privilege of knowing who they're going to play for a whole two weeks before they actually play them. All right, we touched on the COVID pause as much as we're going to touch on the COVID pause for today's episode here in segment one. Coming up in the second segment, we're going to answer more listener submitted questions. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, plain and simple. It's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Bilt Bar has nine delicious flavors, including some all-time favorites like raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, coconut, and my personal favorite, salted caramel. Of course, Bilt Bar is not only great tasting, they are healthy too. Most Bilt Bar flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, and only 4 grams of sugar. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Go to BiltBar.com now and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. That's BiltBar.com, promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zag, still talking, listener submitted questions all episode long. It's Mailbag Monday. That's the routine. This first question comes from John via Gmail. He says, Drew Timmy does not seem as dominant this year as he was last year. Is that a reality or just my perception? He goes on. He says, last year he averaged 19 points per game with seven rebounds while shooting 66% from the floor. This year he is averaging 16.7 points per game with six rebounds while shooting 60% from the floor. 
He also seems to be missing baskets around the rim that he normally made last year. Do you agree he is not the dominant player that he was last year? And if if there is any agreement on that, is that due to the fact that last year's players were so skilled in many ways, this team's players aren't as much, and it helped Timmy's overall game? So yeah, so last year, and I think it's an important distinction here that you're looking at last year's Timmy's full season stats. This year, Timmy has only played the non-conference slate. He has not played the WCC slate. Last year during non-conference, Timmy averaged 19 and 7, which is frankly almost exactly what he put up throughout the season. However, last year in the non-conference, Timmy shot 61% from the floor, and then he shot 68% in conference play. So talking about him shooting only 60% from the floor in non-conference, that's basically exactly the same as what he did last year. So to answer the overall question, no, I don't think that there's anything wrong with Drew Timmy. I do not think that he is not as dominant. I think part of it, he's playing less minutes per game. So of course your points and rebounds numbers are going to go down if you're playing less minutes. And also the 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 structure of the team has changed. Gonzaga's getting a lot more points per game from their front court than they did last year. Last year's roster, the majority of the points came from either from Drew Timmy. The, almost all of the front court points came from Drew Timmy. I do know that Corey Kispert played a lot of minutes at the four, but he was still he wasn't scoring around the basket very much. He was a perimeter player. When you look at last year's roster, the in the interior presence was Drew Timmy. This year you have Drew Timmy, you have Chet Holmgren, who also does a lot of his damage around the perimeter, but he does score a lot in the paint. And then you have Anton Watson, who was on the roster last year, but as we have talked about at length on this show, he is a completely different player. He is far more aggressive looking for his own shot. He is putting the ball on the deck. He is posting up. He is doing things very differently than he did last year. Gonzaga's overall ability to score around the rim has not has gotten better from last year's team. They are better at that. And Drew Timmy shooting one percentage point less in the non-conference than he did last year doesn't change my perception. He shot 68% in the WCC last year. I think he's going to do about that again this year. I have no reason to believe that he is going to drop as a effective shooter from, from the two points. He's not a good three-point shooter. He wasn't last year. He's about, almost exactly the same as a free-throw shooter. None of that has changed. His field goal percentage hasn't changed either. I think it's also really important to note that this year's non-conference slate was tougher than last year, specifically in terms of physicality in the front court. Gonzaga has faced tougher, stronger, more physical teams this year than they did last year. The second point about that that is critical, Gonzaga played a lot of their really, really good non-conference games very early last season. Kansas, Iowa, Virginia were right at the start of the non-conference slate. At that time, Drew Timmy was not recognized the way that he is now. Drew was very good as a freshman. He was the backup to Philip Petrusev. He played 20 minutes per night. He averaged like 9-5 and five off the bench. He was good, and people knew going into last year that he was going to be good. But the, the way that teams game-planned around Gonzaga's team last year, especially teams early in the year like Kansas, Iowa, Virginia, they were game-planning around Jalen Suggs. They were game-planning around Joel Iai and Corey Kispert. And they knew, hey, that Timmy guy is good, and he's probably going to have a good year. But they did not know that he was going to be National Player of the Year frontrunner, that he was going to be that kind of player. This year, coming into this year, every single team is circling Drew Timmy's name first. That's the first thing they're doing when they're game-planning against this Gonzaga team. So there have been games where teams have solely focused on trying to shut him down. 
that makes his performance against a team like Texas even more incredible because all Texas wanted to do was, hey, we want to stop Drew Timmy. And he scored 37 points against them. And every other team this year has like, what do we do to stop Drew Timmy? Do we foul him every time he touches the ball and put him to the free throw line like Alabama did? Do we just double or triple team him before he even gets the ball? Do we send doubles immediately? Every team is trying to figure out how to get the basketball out of Drew Timmy's hands. So the fact that he's still averaging 17 points per game, the fact that he's still averaging six rebounds per game, which are slightly less than he averaged in the non-conference last year, about two points per game, about a bucket less per game and one rebound less per game, while he's still shooting almost exactly the same field goal percentage in the non-conference as he did last year. The fact that all of that is still virtually the same, while the way that defenses are approaching him has improved dramatically because of how much of a face of the player team he is. So yes, in one in one slight way, the, the team roster construction is different. There's no Jalen Suggs, there's no Corey Kispert, there's no Joel Ayayi. That means teams are even more focused on stopping Drew Timmy. So yes, his number's slightly down. In the WCC, in the conference slate, I think he's probably going to bump him back up. I think he's going to shoot 66 68% from the field. I think you're going to see his season line at the end of the year look very similar to it did last year. And even if it's a little bit lower, I don't think it's something about him being less dominant. I think it's just that the ball is out of his hands a little bit more because teams are so focused on stopping him that they're going to make other players beat them. That's where players like Chet Holmgren and Anton Watson and Andrew Nembhard and Rasir Bolton need to step up, and they have. And that's why Gonzaga only has two losses on the year despite playing a ridiculous schedule is because those players have stepped up. There's nothing wrong with Drew. His, he's just as good as he's ever been before. He just has to adjust his game because of the way defenses are playing him, and thus far he has done that. This next question comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, when you look at Corey's season, this is Corey Kispert, and the last 10 games there is cause for optimism. On the season, Corey is averaging five points and shooting 28.9% from three. In his last 10 games, he's averaging nine points and shooting 36.7% from three. His field goal percentage is about the same, and Corey's increase in minutes is largely due to other players being out due to COVID. Yeah, so it was only a matter of time until Corey's outside shots started falling. I think it timed out really well that he started to find his stroke right around the time that he started getting a lot more minutes. Obviously, the start at Madison Square Garden, where he scored 20 points, shot the crap out of the basketball. Washington beat New York. It was a huge coming out party for him, a massive shot to his confidence to be that good on that big of a stage. Then he continues to get playing time. I think Washington trusting him to be like, hey, you're going to you're gonna enter the starting lineup and you're going to play 25, 30 minutes per night. That was a huge confidence boost for him because, yes, yes, he got a lot of that playing time because of COVID. There's no, there's no secret about that. That's why he stepped into the starting lineup. But for them to trust him like, hey, you know, you're ready. You're ready to go. You could see how that reflected in his game. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Contavious Caldwell-Pope's going to be back soon. Rui is hopefully going to be back soon. He was nearing a return before he went into health and safety protocols with COVID-19. So hopefully he's back soon. Hopefully KCP is back soon. That will make it interesting to see what happens with Corey. Does he get relegated back to playing very infrequently? Does he still get a bigger role? Do those guys have a smaller role? I would assume they're going to ease Rui back into action, which helps Corey stay on the court a little bit longer. But yeah, he's proven that he is... The 28.9% shooter that he's been so far this season is not accurate, whereas the 37% shooter he's been in the last 10 games, that's probably more the guy we're going to see going forward. All right, this next question comes from Kevin at Tabo Collins on Twitter. 
He says, I'd like to follow former Zags after they transfer. Any idea what the status is on Pavel Zakharov? He had some appearances in November, but nothing since then, and he's not even listed on the roster on the Cal Baptist website. Yeah, so I've noticed this. I, I talked about it a little bit on Twitter. Uh, after getting this question, I emailed a few people at Cal Baptist, did not get a response, was not expecting <laughs> to get a response. I would have been pretty surprised if I did. Um, but yeah, everything Kevin said in his question is correct. He played in four games. He played very, very little. In those four games, I think that kind of helps paint the picture a little bit more. He was barely playing, didn't seem to be a part of the rotation, and then he just vanished. He's no longer on the roster. His web, his site, his page is completely down from their site. So there's a couple options here. He could have returned home to to Russia. He could have, you know, just decided to go back and play professional basketball. He could have been dismissed from the basketball team. He could have been dismissed from the university. Uh, he could be off the team and still at the school. Uh, and there's a chance we don't ever know if he doesn't publicize it and post it on some kind of social media or, or anything like that. We just may not know. So if I ever find an answer, if somebody from Cal Baptist responds to me or I hear something, I will post it on Twitter. I will talk about it. I like tracking these former players, too. This has been a, a somewhat disappointing development. I, I hope that everything is OK, obviously, with Pavel. That, that's first and foremost the concern. But as a guy who was a top 50 recruit in his class, came to Gonzaga, never carved out playing time. There was kind of some hope that going to a smaller school would instantly make him you know, a really productive college basketball player, and that, that has not happened. So hopefully he finds his way and ends up in a place that makes him happy. But uh, it, as of right now, it does not look like that is at Cal Baptist. All right, next question for this segment comes from John. He says, if you could choose a dream team since 2011, since the 2011 season up until this year, who would be in your starting lineup one through five? He said, using the last 10 years, what players would make up your optimal lineup to play in a national championship game? And would that team have beaten Baylor last year? So I'm going to focus on making a lineup that would beat Baylor because I think if that's the that's the exercise, that's what I want to do. So this is my all, my five lineup. And honestly, my actual lineup, uh, just the best lineup, probably doesn't differ from this, maybe in one spot. But here's my, my starting five. Uh, at the one, Nigel Williams-Goss. At the two, Jalen Suggs. At the three, Corey Kispert. At the four, DeMontis Sabonis. And at the five, Brandon Clark. So this lineup specifically, the, the spot that I kind of waffled over the most was the was Corey Kispert. I was confident in Clark and Sabonis as my big men. I was confident in Nigel Williams-Goss and Jalen Suggs in particular because Baylor's big physical guards were a factor in that game. That was a big thing. And obviously Suggs was in that game and he did not have a great game, but he has the size and the physicality to play with those guys. Nigel Williams-Goss is Gonzaga's biggest point guard from the last 10 years and also arguably their most skilled. So having him in the lineup was kind of a no-brainer. And I thought hard about putting Rui over Corey Kispert. That was the biggest question mark for me. But a starting lineup of Williams-Goss, Suggs, Rui, Sabonis, and Clark doesn't shoot very well. That's the biggest issue. That's not a good three-point shooting team. Williams-Goss was fine. He was a 36-ish percent three-point shooter, but he was not an elite three-point shooter. Suggs was not elite. Rui was not elite. Sabonis or Clark, not three-point shooters. So you'd have a starting five lineup without a lot of shooting, and that could be concerning. So I threw Kispert in there. He's the best peer three the school has had in a really long time. Uh, I know he played a lot of small ball four last year and in a lineup alongside Sabonis and Clark. It would be a bit of a challenge. I thought really hard about benching Sabonis, starting Kispert at the four, and starting somebody else who could shoot a little bit at the three, maybe even going with a three-guard lineup there. 
but ultimately decided this is the way that I would most want to attack that Baylor roster from last year. There are tons of ways to do this. Tons and tons and tons of ways to make up a lineup that works successfully. This lineup excludes Kevin Pangos. It excludes Josh Perkins. It excludes... Zach Collins, Shemit Karnowski, Kyle Wilcher, like the list goes on and on and on of players who played after that 2011 season. Kelly Olynyk, like I could go on and on. There's a ton of really talented players. Obviously, most of you know how great Gonzaga has been for the last 10 years, uh, but this is the lineup that I would pick to attack Baylor specifically. If you have something different, would love to hear it. Reach out to me at ScoreZagScore on Twitter. I love talking about hypothetical lineups for situations like this. It's always fun. All right, two segments down. Coming up, we're going to answer a few more listener-submitted questions. Before we get there, though, I want to talk about today's sponsor, GetUpside. Hey, Zags fans, Andy Patton here with an incredible app everyone who buys gas needs to know about, GetUpside. My listeners are making up to $0.25 cents for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free GetUpside app in the App Store or Google Play right now. Use promo code SCORE and get a bonus of $0.25 per gallon on your first fill-up. That means a total of $0.50 cash back. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using GetUpside. Just download the app for free and use promo code SCORE to get up to $0.50 per gallon cash back on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two dollars to $300 a month in cash back, and there's no catch. The cash back gets added right to your account. You can cash out at any time to your bank account, to PayPal, or an e-gift for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code SCORE to get 50% cash back on your first tank. All right, segment three, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zag, still answering listener-submitted questions all episode long. This next one comes from Christian via Gmail. He listed a WCC conference levels. And he wanted to know if I agree with the above breakdown. Level one, Gonzaga, the level of their own. Absolutely agree there. Level two, St. Mary's, USF, and BYU. Level three, Santa Clara. Level four, LMU and USD. And level five, Pepperdine, Portland, and Pacific. So I had a few changes. Uh, absolutely, Gonzaga in a level of its own. Level two being St. Mary's, USF, and BYU. Totally fine. They're very, very clearly behind Gonzaga and very clearly ahead of everybody else. With level three, you had just Santa Clara. I would move LMU into that level. I think Santa Clara and LMU are very close right now. And then level four would just have USD, but I would also move Pepperdine into that level. So level three would be Santa Clara and LMU. Level four would be USD and Pepperdine. And level five would be Portland and Pacific. Frankly, it's a, it's, it's a pretty insignificant difference, I think. Uh, obviously, the levels are arbitrary as it is, and the difference between five and eight in this conference, or five and nine, really, in this conference, is they're all pretty close. Portland and Pacific are clearly a step down, which is why they're in their own separate level. But the difference between Santa Clara, LMU, USD, and Pepperdine in particular, there's not a huge difference. All of those schools are fairly close together. It's it's kind of level one, level two is the three other schools, and then all the rest of them kind of mush together with Portland and Pacific bringing it up at the rear. Hopefully they continues to get a little bit of separation. Ideally, one or two of Santa Clara and LMU kind of step up and make this conference really have five legitimate contenders for, a w, for an NCAA spot. The fact that they have four, I'm certainly not complaining. That's great. That's not been the history for the majority of the, not even the majority, all of the time that I have followed the WCC and Gonzaga basketball, they have not had even 
really ever three. Very rarely have they had three teams legitimately contending for a spot in the NCAA tournament. Now they have four. Getting up to five or six would be fantastic, but I'm going to be happy with four for a while. All right, this next question comes from John via Gmail. He says, given our success over the past six to seven years as being a top 10 team nationally, how do we replace both Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren? For 2022, the current players of Greg Perry, Watson, and Huff are good players, but are they and will they be on the same level as our current bigs or former bigs? How concerned are you for 2022 in the front court, and how much does Gonzaga have to do on the transfer market to help replace both players? And he says, note, I am assuming Timmy does leave. Yeah, so I am not necessarily assuming that Drew Timmy leaves. I've said that on this podcast a handful of times, that I think there's a decent chance he pulls a Christian Leitner, comes back for his fourth season as like the most hated but well-known player in the college basketball landscape. But if we're assuming that Timmy and Holmgren are both gone, which Holmgren certainly is going to be gone, I think that the the assertion that we need to replace them is incorrect. Like, that's not the way that I'm thinking about it, and I promise you that is not the way that Mark Few and their staff is thinking about it. We do not need to replace a top three pick in the NBA draft. We do not re- need to replace a player who will be a two-time National Player of the Year contender. We don't need to replace those guys. That's an unfair thing to ask of the players who are already already on this roster or any players that they potentially bring in. Gonzaga needs to find ways to win with the players that they get. And they will not have a Chet Holmgren. They will not have a Drew Timmy. That is okay. Those guys are so unique and so special and so, you know, significant in who they are as basketball players that trying to replace them is just not, not an accurate way to look at it. I would say that saying that those guys aren't as good as Drew Timmy and Anton Watson, or excuse me, Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren is accurate, but we're, we need to focus on the fact that Anton Watson looks like he's going to be a superstar next year. He is already being rated as one of the 10 best players in college basketball this season because of what he is doing on the defensive end of the floor and the improved offensive efficiency. He's scoring around the rim really well. He does not have that mid-range. He really doesn't have that three-point shot. Those are things that I would like to see more of. Drew Timmy has proven how successful you can be without an outside shot, and Anton Watson is significantly better on the defensive end of the floor than Drew Timmy. So while I don't think Watson will ever be the scorer that Drew Timmy is and command the attention that Drew Timmy does when he has the basketball in his hands. Anton doesn't have to be that good to be as impactful of a player. In fact, he could be a fairly significantly worse offensive player than Drew Timmy and still be as good or better than him because of what he brings defensively. Now, Watson is not a rim protector and losing Chet Holmgren the, the current roster as constructed with Greg Perry, Watson and Huff doesn't leave Gonzaga with a lot of rim protection. There's some hope that Caden Perry will develop into a Brandon Clark-esque player and be a good rim protector. I'd be pretty surprised if next season he steps up and is like a really good rim protector right away. This season, he looks like a turnstile on defense. He has not proven, and it's been a tiny sample size, and he's been dealing with injuries. So I don't want to say that I don't think he's ever going to be good defensively. That's not true. I do think he will be. But expecting him to be good defensively next season is probably not a smart decision. Because if he's not, you have Ben Gregg, who I don't think is going to develop into a great defensive player. You have Anton Watson, who is elite but not a rim protector. And you have Braden Huff, who is a true freshman and hasn't been lauded as a huge defensive player just yet. So I would not be surprised to see Gonzaga peruse the transfer market, see if they can find a player who can come in and protect the rim a little bit, kind of do that, play that role, particularly if Drew Timmy leaves. But also, Gonzaga's going to have four bigs next season. If Julian Strother comes back, 
which is also something that is up in the air. He could play a lot of small ball four. That's kind of Gonzaga really succeeded a lot last year and in previous seasons with three guard lineups that included a a wing type player playing the four. Corey Kispert, of course, was the primary example of that as he played a four basically exclusively when he was uh, when he was in a Gonzaga uniform last season. So I could see them using Strother in that role and kind of rolling with the guys that they have, but it wouldn't be surprising to see them try to get a transfer on the market. I'm not overly concerned about their front court depth next season to to give an overall answer to the question. It's not something I'm super worried about yet. Next question comes from Kelly Bilderback at Kelly Bilderback on Twitter. She says the Gonzaga women's basketball players do not have last names on their game jerseys. This bothers me in light of the gender inequality we continue to see with men's versus women's programs. Do you think this is the athletic program dropping the ball uh, on giving the women their fair share of what they deserve? I feel like this is less than what they deserve and that they should be able to have their names represented on their jerseys just like the men. What other reason could there be other than someone trying to save a buck and shortchange the women's ballers? Kelly, this is a great question. Uh, this is a, a fantastic point and something that I had not noticed. I, I, I'm ashamed to admit that I've watched women's basketball games and it didn't occur to me. I frankly barely noticed that there are names on the back of the men's jerseys, but you are correct. The women's team do not have names on the back of their jerseys. The men's team do. I asked a couple of people who I thought might might be able to have an answer to this. They did not know. So I don't have a firm answer for you um, in terms of what other reason could there be. It definitely seems plausible that they have not replaced the women's jerseys um, with adding the names to the back, I guess is the best way to put it. They haven't done it yet. Hopefully they do. Hopefully it's something that the women's basketball team has brought up if they have not already. Uh, I mean, again, we have to assume it's something that they want. I would think that you would want to have your name on the back of your jersey. It's a cool thing. Uh, If they're selling the jerseys, you want your name on the back, certainly. But I don't know if it's just something that hasn't happened yet. If they prioritize the men's team over the women's team, you would think that it's something they would do for both teams and not just one team. So it is a little disappointing that it is not a situation that has happened for the women's team yet. Hopefully it does soon. But uh, I unfortunately don't have a specific answer as to why it has not happened yet. Final question of the show from Christian via Gmail. He says, what is the best snack beverage pairing for a morning game, an afternoon game, or an evening game, assuming you could only have one drink and one food for the entire game? I love this. This is a great question. Gonzaga has played morning games and afternoon games and evening games this year, so we've gotten to experience what you should be consuming from both, from all three, excuse me, of those game types. For the morning, my preferred solution is a Bloody Mary and a BEC, which is a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, preferably on a bagel. Uh, trying, to, trying to eat less carbs makes it a little bit more difficult with the bagel in there, but a bagel breakfast sandwich and a Bloody Mary is going to get it done in the morning. For the afternoon, a truly uh, hard seltzer is a nice way to not get too, <laughs> too over full necessarily, uh, and chips and dip, uh, you know, you want to go with the snack time in the afternoon and then in the evening uh, a nice a nice IPA and a pizza is the way to go in my mind uh, pizza is easy uh, it's something easy to eat while you eat while your eyes are still on the game it's easy to heat up it's easy to cook it doesn't take a lot of time so that's the preferred dinner route there so you can still focus on the game activities while enjoying good food and a good beverage all right, that is going to do it for me today. We got a pair of guests lined up for this week. We got a lot of time to fill and not a lot of games to talk about. So we got some guests coming on. We're going to talk about some Gonzaga related topics, some NBA draft stuff. It's going to be super fun. All right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts and of course available on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button on YouTube if you have not already. 
Finally, thank you again to those of you who have made this show your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your second listen of the day, the Locked On Bets podcast. Locked On Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your sports gambling needs. Locked On Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags!